All right, welcome everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about period nine, topic one, uh, the apex of liberalism. So the, our last unit, period nine, we're going to look at the rise of liberalism, the backlash of conservatism, and then where we stand in the modern era today. Uh, with the apex of liberalism, we're going to be looking a lot at Lyndon Johnson's presidency. And Johnson was quite successful on the domestic front. He was a failure in, in terms of foreign affairs with the Vietnam War. But on the domestic front, he is going to get quite a few laws passed. They're collectively, we call them the Great Society package of laws. And what is unique about them is he was able to achieve like massive societal transformation through these laws uh, without a massive crisis. So usually, anytime our, our nation uh, you know, adds a whole lot of amendments to the Constitution or passes a flurry of laws... It's we're, we're coming out of a severe crisis. If you think Reconstruction, we just got out of the Civil War. So 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. And if you think uh, the New Deal, a lot of laws passed there. We're just coming out of the Great Depression. The Great Society is unique in that all of these laws were passed, but we, we didn't have this major national crisis. We had a booming economy, so things were going pretty good in the country. Timeline-wise, uh, LBJ, the president of the 1960s, he is going to draw a lot of his ideas from uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Remember, he was president back in the 1930s and 40s, and then Harry Truman took over after him. Uh, a lot of Harry Truman ideas are going to be inspirations for stuff in the Great Society programs. Uh, and then in the next unit, we're going to talk about the rise of conservatism. Uh, Nixon, he gets elected in 68. Reagan will get elected in 1980. If you take a look at Lyndon Johnson's election in 1964, he, f he takes over after John F. Kennedy is assassinated in 1963. And then he has to run for his own term in 1964. And he, he got a Civil Rights Act passed in 1964 before the election. He ran against Barry Goldwater from Arizona in the 1964 election, and it was one of the biggest landslide elections in U.S. history. He destroyed Barry Goldwater. So... Swept the country. The only places that really voted Republican were the Deep South that really did not like the Civil Rights Act in Arizona, where Barry Goldwater was from. Barry Goldwater is a Republican. Barry Goldwater, Barry Goldwater did not like the Civil Rights Act. Um, and he was one of the first true conservative candidates for the Republican Party uh, that attempted to run for president. Lyndon Johnson had what we would call in the political world a mandate. You know, he had. Uh, not only did he have the presidency secured with massive electoral college suite, but he also had the Senate. The Democrats had control of the Senate. The Democrats had control of the House. And as you can see in his inauguration speech, he recognized the moment that he had. He said, we have achieved a unity of interest among our people that is unmatched in the history of freedom. So we're going to look at the Great Society here, and we're going to look at the main pieces of legislation and their overall level of success and what they did with the federal government. Lyndon Johnson, when he came in to office right after JFK's assassination, uh, he said, you know, when I went into that office tonight and they came in and started briefing me on what I have to do, do you realize that every issue that is on my desk tonight was on my desk when I came into Congress in 1937? So a lot of the laws that Lyndon Johnson is going to successfully get passed were things that, that had been talked about for decades in the United States, things that other presidents had failed to get passed. You could see in these pictures, Lyndon Johnson had a way with working over senators. He had been in the Senate, 
for quite a long time. And the, the way he's talking with these people here, the nickname for this is the Johnson Treatment. He had a special way to lobby people. Few presidents have been as good as him at getting laws passed. Maybe the top two are probably Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. Um, with these two guys, when they wanted to get a law passed, they found a way to get it done. Very difficult to get a law passed. Very difficult to get, you know, most presidents can hang their hats on one, one major law, Barack Obama, Obamacare. President Trump had some uh, tax cut passed when he was first president. George W. Bush had a tax cut, had no child left behind. You know, so it's rare to get a flurry of laws passed when, when you're a president. Um, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society laws have a lot in common with the New Deal. Sometimes we call them the New Deal 2.0. They're adding on to the New Deal. So because they share so much in common with the New Deal, very likely that you're going to you potentially see a short answer question where you have to make comparisons between the New Deal and the Great Society. So the first, the first laws that come out of the, this vision of the Great Society um, have to do with trying to address poverty. And when we say that this topic is about liberalism, we need to remember that, you know, liberalism, some of the core ideals or issues of liberalism is trying to protect disadvantaged groups. And, you know, people in poverty would be one disadvantaged group that liberals would care a lot about. Michael Harrington wrote a book in 1963 called The Other America, in which he tried to... Uh, Warn the country, hey, it's booming economy. We've got all of this affluence. Uh, it seems like everything's going great, but there still is this persistent pocket of poverty in the United States that's going unaddressed. And a lot of politicians were influenced by this book, LBJ being one of them. So Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, decided that he was going to wage war on poverty uh, when he took over the presidency. The quotes on the left are worth analyzing. He says, in a land of great wealth, families must not live in, a, in hopeless poverty. In a land rich in harvest, children just must not go hungry. In a land of healing miracles, neighbors must not suffer and die unattended. In a great land of learning and scholars, young people must be taught to read and write. Very often, a lack of jobs and money is not the cause of poverty, but the symptom. The cause may lie deeper in our failure to give our fellow citizens a fair chance to develop their own capacities, in a lack of education and training, in a lack of medical care and housing, in a lack of decent communities in which to live and bring up their children. Lyndon Johnson grew up poor in Texas Hill Country. One of his first jobs was a public school teacher in which he was teaching mostly um, Mexican-American children who were also living in poverty. So this man knew what poverty looked like and uh, wanted to deal with it uh, when he was president. And so it took a lot of inspiration from FDR's New Deal. Uh, he also recognized that within the federal government, there's all of these bureaucracies who have rivalries with each other. And what he thought he would do is encourage all of them to tackle poverty and, and give all of them some, something they could do to fight poverty. So with, with the Department of Education, um, create the Head Start program, which is a subsidized preschool program for students who can't afford. Most, most of the time you send your kids to preschool, it's run by a private organization. You have to pay money. Um, but Head Start would be financed and funded by the government, so free preschool. Um, also providing federal aid to public schools. Ramp that up seven times over. Uh, and then um, you know schools could, could hire more teachers, buy more books, update their buildings, um, but improve the schools. Housing, um, give the Housing and Urban Development uh, Committee and, and Department more funding to, to address housing conditions. The Department of Labor, um, 
try to do more job training and create something called the Job Corps uh, to help people get out of poverty, help them find better jobs. Uh, within the food um, sector, uh, in the nutrition world, beef up food stamps to help people out who are in poverty, and then in the Department of Health and Human Services, expand welfare so that you don't just have to be a widow uh, to qualify for welfare. And so the, the program uh, that came out of this was called Aid to Families with Dependent Children. When most people hear the word welfare, that's the program that they, were, they would think of. Collectively, how successful were these efforts? Poverty did go down. We didn't wipe out poverty. We can't say that this successfully ended poverty in the United States, but it did drop. Uh, it, it dropped from, it had been hovering in the 20 to 30 percentile range for several decades, and it did drop to um, into the uh, 10 to 15 percentile range. And it's hovered there ever since. So it's kind of, in the United States, poverty tends to stay in that 10 to 15 percent uh, band range, but much better than it was um, prior to this war on poverty. Downside to this, increased spending. A lot of these programs are going to cost money. And so if you look, this is at the same time where the United States is spending a lot of money in Vietnam. So if you're a fiscal conservative, in the next unit, we're going to talk about the backlash of conservatives. This is something that's going to start angering people. All of this, all of this spending, all of this money being spent on Vietnam at the same time we're spending all this money on these new great society war on poverty programs. And so there will be a backlash to that. Another key piece of legislation, another concern of liberals is protection of minority groups, um, disadvantaged minority groups, especially African-Americans. So the Voting Rights Act, a key part of the Great Society, uh, passed in 1965. So we talked about that a lot with the Civil Rights Movement. We know the Selma March did a lot to this uh, to get this passed. We know that it got rid of the literacy test. We know that it definitely made it easier for African-Americans to register to vote in Alabama and Mississippi. Something you might not be aware of, it also contained a clause that allowed the federal government to continue to investigate these states, especially in the South, that had a long history of voter discrimination. Anytime they wanted to pass a new voting law, let's say to add a new restriction to voting and make it harder to vote, uh, they had to submit that law to the federal government first for approval. Uh, and so it, it ensured that these, you know, these southern states didn't try to sneak new voter excuse me, voter discrimination laws through the system again. The I would say that the biggest achievement of the Great Society program is this is this package right here, the Medicare Medicaid laws. This is something that you see LBJ in the lower left picture handing a, a pen. He had just signed this in a lie, handing a pen to Harry Truman. Harry Truman had been president in 1948. Uh, in, in he, where he was elected in 48, he had proposed this in his Fair Deal program that the United States add on to Social Security and had some, add some health care benefits on to Social Security and never was able to get it done. So 20 years later, LBJ is able to get it done. And we get Medicare and Medicaid. It's, it's an add-on to the Social Security program that was started in the New Deal. So there's your similarity there to uh, FDR. Uh, Medicare, what is Medicare? It's, it's government-subsidized health care for the elderly, so you have to be older than 65 to qualify for it. You also have to, I'm jumping down on the notes a little bit, you have to have contributed into it to qualify for it. So it's financed by an increase in the payroll tax. It's not just something that everybody gets uh, in the United States. It's, it's, an earned, it's an earned benefit. So you, you, you know, a lot of you, if you have a job today, you're having taxes taken out of, out of your paycheck. Uh, that payroll tax and that that is going to you know help subsidize other people's Medicare expenses right now, but that also means that you're going to qualify for this program uh, when you um, get old. Medicaid 
is government subsidized healthcare, not for the elderly, but for the poor. Uh, and you have to be a U.S. citizen to get this, so you don't, not just everybody qualifies for this. Uh, there is a there is a part of Medicaid, though, that the elderly do benefit from. And if you work at a nursing home, you might be aware of this. But a lot of elderly people today um, have their their stay in nursing homes financed by Medicaid. The the cost of, of a like one month in a nursing home, I don't know if you like thousands of dollars typically for a person to you know think about all the services that, that they need when they stay in a nursing home. Uh, so Medicaid steps in and helps out for people who've exhausted all of their savings uh, when they're staying in nursing homes, all right? Um, so a lot of you, if you're working at a nursing home, you might not realize this, but you're, a big big portion of your job might be dependent on that Medicaid program there. Uh, it, the startling number is that like 40% of Americans today rely on these one of these two programs, Medicare or Medicaid, or if you're elderly, maybe in a nursing home, you rely on both. So it, it's, it's almost impossible for most Americans today to retire without, without Medicare, um, you know, because of how expensive healthcare is. Uh, the other weird thing with, with this program is that in order for hospitals to receive this, this money, they had to integrate. There was a lot of segregated hospitals in the South, and this forced, them, this forced them to integrate. If you take a look at the chart on the top left, you can see this, this did have a pretty dramatic effect at reducing poverty for the elderly. Uh, that this this definitely uh, in this we could make an attachment to the war on poverty here that this di did help. The fourth key um, law from the Great Society program was immigration reform. We don't have many immigration laws in U.S. history, so the last one that we talked about was in 1924, and this is the next update. And we really haven't done a major update and overhaul to our immigration system since this law, since the Immigration Act of 1965. George W. Bush tried to get a, an immigration law passed when he was president. Donald Trump kind of toyed around with the idea of getting one passed during his presidency, was not able to. We'll see if Joe Biden wants to do anything with immigration. But it, we were kind of still using this system that was put in place in 1965. We got rid of the quotas from 1924. You do see in the chart on the lower left, it did open the door to more immigrants to move into the country. So we did see an increase in the number of immigrants. We don't, uh, we don't just pick countries and you know, give preference to certain countries anymore. We base it off of uh, the preferential system now is based off of who has relatives living in the United States. So sometimes you might hear this called chain migration, that if you have a family member living in the United States, it might be easier for their relatives living abroad to then uh, move into the United States. I would say three key impacts you want to be aware of, legacies of this, is that we see a, a huge increase in the number of Hispanic and Asian immigration waves. And if you take a look at the chart on the top left and look at the pie chart for 1961 to 1980, you can see the Mexico uh, pie chart got a lot bigger compared to the 1941 to 1960, and the Asia um, portion of the pie chart got much bigger and also stayed big in that next wave too. And also... Africa, uh, the door to African immigrants was opened. It's, it's cracked open there. If you take a look, it's 2% in 1961 and 1980, but it's 6% in 1981 and 1996. Um, and it was 0.8% back in 1941 and 1960 before this immigration law. Um, so the door was open there. But, but Hispanic immigration waves and Asian immigration waves are going to be the biggest uh, coming into the country. We don't just see liberalism in the executive branch. We see it in the judicial branch in the, in the Warren Court. Um, this is Chief Justice Earl Warren. He is appointed by a Republican, Dwight Eisenhower, to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. 
Dwight Eisenhower at the end of his presidency will say this is one of his biggest regrets uh, because Earl Warren does not turn out to be a lot of his decisions anger a lot of Republicans. Uh, a lot of his decisions are lean liberals. If you take a look at like the issues here, I'm not going to name all the cases, but I just wanted to get a sense for some of the issues. We have talked about Earl Warren in the civil rights topic. So we know that he uh, and his, not just him, but the, the other justices on the Supreme Court did decide cases that, that extended more protections for minority groups, especially African-Americans. So the Brown versus Board case, the Reynolds versus Sims case, the one person, one vote case. We didn't talk about Loving versus Virginia, which Virginia had a law that it was illegal for uh, black and white people to get married. They struck down that law and made interracial marriage legal. Uh, Another minority group, women, uh, would benefit from a a case called Griswold versus Connecticut, where it it expanded access to birth control. It also uh, created this famous phrase, right to privacy. Um, there's also a lot of protections for the accused, people who are accused of committing a crime and put on trial. Um, you maybe have heard of something called your Miranda rights, but that comes out of the, the Warren Court of several different cases, the right to remain silent, the right to an attorney, um, some search and seizure protections. Another case that's going to anger conservatives is separation of church and state. There's there's a, a case that um, it used to be pretty common for public schools to do a mandatory prayer in school. So a, a principal would lead one over the intercom uh, and all the, all the children would have to say it together. Um, so there was a Supreme Court case during the Warren Court era that put an end to that, that said you can't mandate prayer in public school anymore. So it, it um, you know, created that stronger separation of church and state. And there's also another interesting school case uh, called Tinker versus Des Moines on Tinker family. Uh, had been wearing black armbands to protest the Vietnam War during the Vietnam War era, and the Des Moines School District suspended them, and they took that to court, and they won. And the court established the fact that students have free speech rights in school, especially if it's political speech, that the school cannot punish you if you are exercising free speech in school. So that, that case, because it was the context of it was about criticizing the Vietnam War, definitely angered some conservatives. Something else that's happening around this time that, that is you know, adding to the apex of liberalism is we see all these various minority groups um, pushing for more rights, gaining more rights. We're going to start by talking, not necessarily this, I wouldn't call this a minority group, but uh, college students who are pushing the Democratic Party to become more liberal. And the key group is called the Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. And sometimes you'll also hear them referred to as the New Left. So in 1962, they gathered together and they issued this thing called the Port Huron Statement. You can see a quote in the top left. But what they're doing is they're criticizing the old liberals, the the people who kind of were in charge of the Democratic Party, the Harry Trumans and the Lyndon Johnsons, and that those people were not liberal enough. They were pushing them to become more liberal. They were disillusioned by the Cold War. They couldn't believe that these Democrats were embracing this conservative Cold War climate, that Harry Truman was okay with the loyalty oaths. Uh, and that they were, you know, um, there was so much intense focus and hatred on communism in this country. So they, these, when you think of anti-Vietnam War protesters, this is who you should think of. These are the, this is the group who organized some of the largest anti-war protests in the country, and some of the first ones when it wasn't popular to be against the war. So in 1965, they're, they're getting 20,000 people to show up for an anti-war protest in D.C., Four years later, they're getting two million people uh, to show up for anti-war protests. So they're not just anti-Vietnam War. They're also pushing the Democratic Party to become more pro-civil rights. 
Uh, and they're also doing a lot of campus demonstrations. So organize a lot of campus protests. UC Berkeley, I know Berkeley is kind of thought of as this bastion of liberalism where they had, that's where the free speech movement really launched out of. So uh, the picture on the lower left is depicting their their uh, takeover of Columbia University in New York City, the Students for a Democratic Society, but they would often have these package of demands. A little different than another another group that was challenging uh, conformity at the time, the counterculture. So the counterculture and the SDS, they might seem kind of similar, um, but I guess the difference here, the counterculture was maybe not as interested in politics. These are children of the baby boom. They're going to be the same age as the Students for a Democratic Society. Um, they're going to be like the Students for a Democratic Society. They're going to be, you know, challenging conformity. Um, but, you know, this is a group that I think is, is uh, more people are aware of. They're depicted in pop culture all the time. These are the hippies. You know, they're experimenting with marijuana, with LSD, with hallucinogenic drugs. They're engaging in communal living. They're growing their hair long. They're wearing psychedelic clothing. They're embracing Eastern religious traditions, but, but they're not really interested in political action. The famous phrase uh, that, that is associated with the early hippies, you know, Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco, uh, LSD, turn on, tune in, drop out. You, know, that you don't have to be so involved in, in this uh, um, political society. The feminist movement. Uh, at this time, what are they focused on? What are their issues? Workplace discrimination. We should. I should mention that the next few groups we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the feminist movement, the Chicano movement, the American Indian movement, the gay rights movement. All of them inspired by the civil rights movement. So all of them take inspiration and and steal tactics and ideas from the civil rights movement. So we'll start with the feminist movement. So. Um, they're focusing on workplace discrimination, maternity leave. They were wanting maternity leave. A lot of women would get fired from their jobs when they got pregnant. Sexual harassment was a major workplace issue, and equal pay for equal work uh, was an issue that a lot of women were concerned about in the 1960s and 1970s. Pregnancy issues, um, access to birth control. There was a lot of states that did not let women get birth control unless their, hus- like their husband had to go in with them and get the birth control for them. Um, access to abortions. When we were getting abortions, they wanted it legalized so that it could be provided by a medical professional um, and that there wouldn't be as much death and dangerous, uh, what we would, you know, quote unquote, call back alley abortions. All right. So that was a that was a, a major issue. There were states, a lot of states throughout the country that had made abortion illegal. Um, cultural sexism was a key issue of, you know, women not being able to participate in sports. If, you, if you're ever bored in the library in Mankato, go in the back, pull some yearbooks from the late 1960s, early 1970s, and count the number of sports that were available to men, and then count the number of sports that were available to girls. So if you start in the late 1960s, you're going to see that there's probably like 17 sports that boys could do, and three for girls, right? So that, you know, why can't girls play just as many sports as boys? That's, that's a sexist issue. Domestic violence. Um, getting more protection for that. The sexual objectification of women's bodies. The picture on the lower left, you see a group of feminists protesting outside the Miss America pageant and trying to raise awareness that why are you judging us by our beauty? We're not animals. Um, and so they, they were raising awareness about that. Um, also just challenging the culture of male, male chauvinism, right? And pointing that out and highlighting that and trying to make people more aware of that. Women are also demanding more civil rights protection from the federal government. The 1964 Civil Rights Act contained a clause that made 
uh, discrimination based on sex illegal, and they wanted that enforced. So that's another issue. And they were also on top of that, uh, pushing for lobbying for a new amendment to add to the Constitution called the Equal Rights Amendment. The, the key group uh, for the feminists is called, I don't have them in the, in the slide here, but they're called NOW or NOW, the National Organization of Women. And they're, they're the big pushers for the Equal Rights Amendment. Right? The other name you're going to hear sometimes is Women's Liberation or Women's Libbers. Uh, they were the ones who came up with the phrase, the personal is political. And they would have these consciousness raising sessions where women would gather together and they would encourage women to talk about their personal problems and share their personal issues. What's going on in your home? How is your marriage? What's your home life like? Uh, what are the stresses of your home life life? And as women talk, they would realize this isn't just a problem for me. It's a problem like every woman has in my neighborhood. So it's clearly not a problem with my household. It's a cultural problem, and we need to fix the culture. And that's what this this the point of these sessions was is for women to realize the personal is political. Like we might need there could be a political solution to some of this stuff. On the victory side of things, the legacy of the feminist movement. They did achieve a, a, an amazing amount of cultural change. A lot of the issues we, we identified up above, like they got maternity leave. There's more, there's way more awareness about sexual harassment in the workplace now and things that can be done to deal with that. There's Equal pay hasn't been fully achieved, but it's definitely gotten better. Um, and there's way more awareness about it now. Um, way better access to birth control. Abortion became legal uh, throughout the country with Roe versus Wade decision in 1973. The athletics, the sports problem, Title IX uh, helped solve that. That said, if, if, you're, if you're receiving federal funding, you can't discriminate based on sex. So you can't have 17 sports available for boys and three for girls. So you have to have some parity there. And, it, and if you go back and look at the Mankato West yearbook, after Title IX goes into effect, pull out a yearbook from the late 1970s, you're going to see an explosion of offerings for, for sports for girls. So that was a positive. Um, and you can take a look at the list of the items here and you can see women made uh, immense gains. Look at their entry in the labor force on the chart on the top left. Look how many more women are entering the labor force during this window of time. They, they shattered the barriers that were keeping them out of medical school and law school. It's not like they were permanently banned from these places, but it was just never, it was not a norm. And so you can see very few women entered med school and law school, but now today, they're, they're you know half of the admission, the people going to med school and law school. Um, but notice the immense change there from the 1960s to the 1970s. That's that has to do with the feminist movement. Um, and then take a look at these occupations that had previously been almost all male occupations: lawyers, judges, physicians, surgeons, architects, police officers. Huge gains in those uh, in those professions. Um, we have still room to grow. There are still uh, there are still professions that are predominantly female, like secretaries, nurses, dental assistants, kindergarten teachers, and we still have professions that are still predominantly male: carpenters, airline pilots, automobile mechanics. Um, so we haven't achieved, achieved full equality on that. The next group uh, that was inspired by the civil rights movement would be the Chicano movement. The Chicano refers to uh, it's another name for Mexican American. Um, one thing that they're doing is challenging segregation in California. There's a court case uh, um, where they are successful at challenging segregation in California. The South like to refer to the separation of black and white people as Jim Crow. Uh, the Chicano people in California would refer to their, their the segregation they experienced as Jaime Crow. One success they achieve is they form a union called the, an ag workers union called the United Farm Workers. What was happening in California often is that 
California produ- uh, produce companies would hire Mexican ag workers and also Filipino ag workers. And if one group went on strike, they would fire all of them and replace them with the other group. So they, um, what the United Farm Workers were successful at doing is organizing both of these groups into one union so that they couldn't be played off of one, uh, each other. They had a very successful um, boycott um, called the Delano Great Boycott. It went on for a long time, from 1965 to 1970 led by Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, heavily inspired by the Montgomery bus boycott of the civil rights movement. And what this, what this group did is lobbied the international community to boycott produce, especially grapes, um, from these companies that were um, mistreating these Filipino and Mexican ag workers. So terrible working conditions, terrible pay, you know, they're fighting for um, you know, your typical bread and butter union issues here in this in this region and it took five years but they finally got these companies to cave and recognize their union and sit down at the bargaining table with them and get better wages and better hours and better working conditions and they finally won that union battle and this had been a struggle that had been happening with ag workers in california for nearly a hundred years so that was a that was a huge success um, we did see chicano people forming uh, their own like ethnic voting bloc. It was sometimes called La Raza. Uh, they, they managed to get uh, a La Raza candidate elected, I think, in the mayor race in, in Denver. Uh, in the, I don't remember the exact year, but it's in the 60s, 70s time frame here. And then the, another interesting consequence of this is that we see the Census Bureau um, recognize the power of this community. And so Census Bureau, Bureau um, started adding in the census in 1980 it, options for Hispanic and Latino. Um, and what that has allowed for is it allowed for the, the people who are checking that box are primarily Mexican-American, Puerto Rican-American, and Cuban-Americans. And so it has united those three groups, even though they, they often live like Mexican-Americans, have often uh, been living in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and California. Um, Puerto Ricans have uh, a lot of them live in New York and Cubans, a lot of them live in Florida. Um, so it, it has kind of united all three of those groups and has allowed them to lobby for resources and attention to issues that, that, that affect them. All right. But that would be a positive outcome of this um, Chicano movement here. The American Indian movement. Uh, Goal-wise, what are the key issues they want to focus on? They want to restore uh, their treaty rights. They want to reclaim land that they've lost. They want to have their cultural and tribal religious practices respected. Uh, They don't want states trying to usurp their jurisdiction over their own tribal sovereignty. And so we see that their activism is also heavily inspired by the civil African-American civil rights movement. So sit-ins are a dominant form of protest you're going to see. And also like what the Black Panthers were doing with their police patrol, you're going to see some some similar tactics here. So the first big sit-in that gets a lot of notoriety is up by Seattle in 1966, or I shouldn't call it a sit-in. It was a fish-in. And so the uh, um, Native American group up there uh, was engaging in, in fishing in an illegal way to raise awareness about a treaty violation that the state of Washington was ignoring. Um, the American Indian Movement, uh, or AIM, is, is the name of an official organization. It is launched out of Minnesota, and one of the first things they're doing in Minnesota is police patrols. So it is launched off out of a horrific story of police brutality, and they're doing what the Black Panthers did with, with police patrol, uh, patrols. And so they're going to be very active at a lot of these other, like the 72, 73 events that we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, 
Alcatraz, uh, the, the famous prison island that sits in the harbor outside San Francisco. Um, American Indian activists occupied that in, in 1969 and drew attention to some, some key issues I mentioned earlier above, some of those key goals mentioned above. Same thing happened in 1972. Uh, AIM organized something called the Trail of Broken Treaties, not the Trail of Tears, but the Trail of Broken Treaties. They traveled all across the country and tried to raise awareness about treaty violations. Uh, it ended at the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C., in the key office there. They occupied that that building at the conclusion of that. Uh, and then in 1973, they occupied Wounded Knee, which is, had been that site of that horrific massacre that uh, way back in the uh, 1800s, in the, in the 19th century. So there's the Wounded Knee occupation um, to grows out of some uh, conflict with the Bureau of Indian Affairs on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. On the victory front, so they're able to reclaim a lot. So we have um, we have this perception that like Native Americans disappear after, after the massacre of Wounded Knee. They kind of are wiped out and they die off. And where do they go? They're all gone. You know, so they're all dead and gone. And we never talk about them. They don't come up in our history books anymore. But what we forget is that they're here and they're they're alive and well and kicking in the 1960s and 70s. They're winning a lot of major. Um, victories here. So they, they get an uh, Education Act, Native American uh, American Indian Education Act passed in 1972 that, that cripples that boarding school system that was being used to um, remove kids from reservations and take them away from their families. 1978, they get the Religious Freedom Act passed. So this had also been something that uh, was a problem going back decades. You know, inability to practice their own religions in the ways that they wanted to. Uh, in 1978, they get a law to protect that. 1990, they get a Graves Protection Act. A lot of museums across the country uh, were holding precious items in their collections that were very sacred to American Indians and had been, these were things that had been robbed from them. And that Graves Protection Act allowed them to take that back. And another huge victory is getting the country to do away with Columbus Day. And what you've seen across the country is that state after state and city after city has has. Um, gotten rid of Columbus Day and switched it to something either called Native American, American Indian Day or uh, Native American Heritage Day. And so you've seen a, a, a big movement for that. Under the radar, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but the American Indians have been sweeping the Supreme Court, like victory after victory in the Supreme Court since 1950. A lot of that has to do with the recognition that their treaties were violated and that the United States needed to do something um, to, to fix that. Right. So so a lot of the times, anytime an American Indian group brings a case to the Supreme Court, they're going to win um, because because of the power of those treaties. So they've been quite victorious. This this movement has uh, since it got going in the 1960s and 1970s. One thing I didn't write in that slide that I should back up and point out was um, that you also saw like with with black power and black pride, you saw that with the American Indian movement. So sometimes you'll hear the phrase red power, red pride. And that that had to do with the idea that American Indians should what like do what the African-Americans were doing and stop trying to be white and embrace Native American heritage, American Indian culture, grow your hair long, um, wear traditional Native American clothing, but stop trying to talk white, stop trying to look white, stop trying to act white. Um, so we saw that type of cultural shift happening in the American Indian community. In the gay rights community, uh, there was also a gay rights movement that was launched in the late 1960s, late 1970s. The, the catalyst that most textbooks will cite is the 1969 Stonewall riot. The Stonewall Inn was a bar. You see it pictured there on the lower left. 
Uh, it was in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, New York City. It was a, it was a gay bar. And so there was, this was a place that was a site. Uh, police in New York City like to raid gay bars. And so at uh, 1969, when the police tried to raid this bar, the LGBT group uh, resisted the police presence there, and it turned into a kind of a standoff. A year later, um, as a way to commemorate this event, uh, a group of uh, LGBT, LGBT group in New York City organized a gay pride parade. And this was one of the first major gay pride parades in the country. And then after the 1970 gay pride parade in New York City, they took off across the country. And so you saw across the country, people, um, gay people no longer like this notion of uh, staying in the closet, that they were going to be um, asserting pride in their gay lifestyle and they were not going to uh, conform. Um, the way society had wanted them to. A key, a key victory for the gay rights movement would be getting the American Psychiatric Association to get homosexuality removed as a mental, it used to be labeled a mental illness in the DSM. If you ever take a psychology class, you're gonna talk a lot about the DSM. Uh, but it was removed as a mental illness in 1973. And when that happened, that because it had been labeled a mental illness in the DSM, a lot of states throughout the countries had used that as justification to pass laws discriminating against LGBT people, making it illegal to be gay, making it illegal to engage in gay sexual activity. Uh, so we saw that those laws started to fall apart after 1973. In the 1980s, we started to see states, Wisconsin was the first one in 82, um, start to uh, add to their laws um, you know, that you can't discriminate based on race, you can't discriminate based on sex, and then adding on to that, can't discriminate based on sexual orientation. So no, more protections for uh, LGBT groups there. The 1980s, uh, we saw a lot of activists in this, uh, in this realm try to raise awareness about AIDS. The Reagan administration was pretty silent on that issue and, and not really addressing it. And... Um, a lot of gay activists stepped up. They launched the Silence Equals Death campaign. Maybe you've seen the pink triangle as a symbol. Uh, you, if you've ever been to a gay pride parade before, you maybe have seen that symbol. But um, that is uh, that comes out of the Silence Equals Death campaign. So that was uh, another key victory here. The last group that we're going to talk about is the environmental movement. So they were concerned about the air quality smog and pollution. They're concerned about water. They're concerned about chemicals like DDT. We'll mention that later. Toxic waste, um, acid rain, chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs. They're concerned about ecosystems like endangered species and habitat and, and nature and landscapes. They're concerned about energy usage, oil and nuclear power. They're concerned about overpopulation. They do raise awareness about a lot of these issues, often by publishing books um, by engaging in teach-ins, and the first huge teach-in that they launch, it's called Earth Day, and we've, we've celebrated Earth Day in April um, ever since the 1970s when these groups got it going. Um, major legal victories. They got a lot of laws passed. Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, the Environmental Protection Agency, and uh, another law we'll mention later, the Superfund Disaster Cleanup. Um, a lot of a lot of laws passed after major disasters, and I have a picture of uh, the Cuyahoga River on fire up in uh, Ohio on the top left. Um, so there's like a Santa Barbara oil spill. There's, um, you know, after after a disaster, you usually saw momentum um, to get to get laws passed. What we don't see, and this is just a tip for a multiple choice 
uh, question. We know environmentalists today are very concerned about climate change, global warming. That was not something we saw much in the 1960s. You didn't see a whole lot of books being written about global warming or climate change. So um, if we take a look at those issues, it was there was a lot of concern about air, water, chemicals, ecosystems, energy, overpopulation. Those were those were kind of the key issues at the time. So the role that these these what, these next few items that we're going to list in the notes, these were all turning points in the environmental movement. Silent Spring is the most important one. So this is a book written by Rachel Carson. And the name, Silent Spring, she's concerned about the a chemical, DDT, which was used as a uh, insecticide, a pesticide. And it was being sprayed all over the suburbs, loved it. Uh, you know, everybody in the suburbs wants to have a clean lawn that the kids can play on. And so a lot of suburban cities uh, finance these trucks, drive through their communities and spray this DDT that would kill a lot of bugs, mostly mosquitoes. Um, Rachel Carson was concerned that it was having an impact on the birds, that it was actually this chemical uh, would lead to birds when they would lay an egg. The egg shell would be so weak and thin that it would crack and they would never be able to raise a baby bird. And if all the birds died off, we would have a silent spring. And so that's what the title of her book was. So it's published in 1962. It, it should get credit for launching the modern environmental movement. A lot of environmental movement activity will pick up after this book is published. It, it shocks the country. It raises a lot of concern about this chemical, this DDT chemical that was tripling its usage. I, I mentioned earlier, it kind of goes hand in hand with the growth of the suburbs. President Kennedy, uh, president at the time in 1962, ordered his science advisory committee to look into the claims that the book made. Are they accurate? And the science committee came back and said, they're accurate. And so Congress started working on a law, and it took a while, but in 1972, uh, DDT would be banned in the country. Another, uh, the next crisis that, that woke the country up is the OPEC oil embargo. Israel, in 1973, uh, was attacked by its neighbors, Syria and Egypt, and we call that the Yom Kippur War. Um, they successfully defended themselves. The United States supported Israel. And the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, which is a lot of Middle Eastern countries that were not fans of Israel, responded by trying to embargo oil to the United States. And um, the United States, this is the first time where the United States realizes it, that it was beginning to depend on oil from the, from the Middle East. The energy demand exceeded the supply for the very first time in the United States. There was energy shortages. You see a picture on the top left. Uh, so what happens? There's, there's too much demand. There's not enough supply. Price is going to go up. So oil prices increased four times over in a really short window of time. Imagine waking up tomorrow, going to the gas station, and you see gas is like eight, nine bucks a gallon. People would freak out. Um, Richard Nixon, the president in 1973, tried to impose a nationwide 55 mile per hour speed limit to try to get people to conserve gas. He also uh, sped up the process to approve the Alaskan oil pipeline so that the country would become more energy independent and encouraged research. Uh, this is not just Nixon, but across the country, people realized we might need to start looking for alternative sources of energy uh, and not become so reliant on the Middle East for our oil. Love Canal. Let's go on to this next one. This is in the late 1970s. Love Canal is a neighborhood in Niagara Falls, New York. And these homeowners didn't know this at the time when they bought their homes, uh, but the, the people who developed this neighborhood constructed a neighborhood on top of a paved over toxic waste dump. 
And what was happening is toxic sludge started to leak into the basements of these people's homes. And, and as the neighbors started talking and um, they started looking at some data, they realized they were having a, a larger amount of birth defects and miscarriages compared to other neighborhoods. And so homeowners became very concerned about this. They were trying to raise awareness about this for several years. They were concerned that their homes had no value. Who was going to want to buy a home in a neighborhood now that had a toxic waste problem? And so they were asking the government for help. Can you relocate us? Can you buy our homes from us? Because nobody else is going to buy our homes. And so they used media to raise awareness. They lobbied uh, Congress for help. And Congress would finally respond in the late 1970s with something called the Superfund. Uh, it's the first time that they put this into use. And so it comes out of the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, um, but it, it, it can be used to clean up um, huge hazardous waste sites. And this is one. This is the first one that's ever uh, done that with. And also on top of that, it had a clause to, to be able to um, hold people accountable for past actions, retroactive liability. So they could go after the companies that, that did this in... in um, in the Love Canal neighborhood of Niagara Falls. So kind of some, some jarring images there that you see on the, on the left. Um, Three Mile Island is a uh, biggest nuclear power plant meltdown in the United States. Happened in Pennsylvania also in 1979. 140,000 people had to move uh, and it took quite a long time to clean up. It took 10 years to clean up. It was, uh, I don't know the final cost of everything, but it was in the billions. Um, what, what happened as a result of this? More, more concerns about energy more concerns about nuclear energy and an increase in people who were anti-nuclear and a decline in, you know, we're not really seeing the United States building any new nuclear reactors for energy purposes after this. So um, that's the last one to be aware of. Uh, but let's finish with Richard Nixon, who's a Republican, who's traditionally thought of as a conservative, but we, I'm bringing him up here to just show, just show kind of the power of liberalism and, and how it extended beyond democratic presidencies. I didn't say this at the outset of the video, but I should have. Um, liberalism, liberalism and conservatism today are often synonymous with the two political parties. If you're a liberal, you're a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, you're a liberal. And if you're conservative, you probably vote Republican. And if you're a Republican, you're probably conservative. That was not the case in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So there were liberals or progressives in both political parties. There were liberal Democrats, there were liberal Republicans. And there was conservatives in both parties. There was conservative Democrats and there was conservative Republicans. And so what you're going to see happen in these LBJ's presidencies, you're going to start to see more liberal shift into the Democratic Party and start to drift out of the Republican Party. And then when we get to Nixon, we get to Reagan, you're going to start to see conservatives shift. You're starting to see conservatives shift out of the Democratic Party here uh, with Lyndon Johnson, but they're going to drift into the Republican Party here. But there's still like some power to liberalism, even when Nixon is presidency. So when he's president, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, very popular, are expanded. Food stamps are popular. Nixon increases funding for them. Section 8 housing uh, program, uh, funding is increased for that. Uh, Nixon uh, doesn't... He doesn't really want to push integration, but what he ends up using is the IRS to tell schools that were refusing to integrate, like, we're not going to give you your tax deductions anymore if you continue to be segregated. Um, he did support affirmative action hiring programs uh, in terms of dispersing government contracts. He supported the Equal Rights Amendment. He did sign Title IX into law. And environmentalists at this time, today, we, we, if you call yourself an environmentalist, we, we would say you're probably going to be 
more likely be a Democrat than a Republican. But environmentalists were not were not aligned with the political party in the uh, 1960s and 1970s. Nixon recognized that. Nixon, in 1972, there was a person who was seeking the Democratic nomination um, named Edward Muskie, and he was an environmentalist. And Nixon realized, if I just sign a bunch of environmental laws uh, or environment, you know, environmental legislation into law. I'm going to take the wind out of that guy's sails. He's not going to have a, a campaign to run on. And so that's what he did. And so he he passed, signed the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Endangered Species Act. Um, all of this gets signed into law as a way to weaken uh, the, the environmentalist candidate for the Democratic Party. And, and Nixon was successful at that. All right. So that's where we're going to stop today um, for the notes. But remember, the key idea here was that that a lot of those laws passed by Lyndon Johnson passed at a time where we were not coming out of a huge crisis. And uh, you can see he had that sweeping victory in 1964. The mystery is look at the map for 1972 and look at how quickly the country shifted. And remember that LBJ had said in 1964 that we've achieved a unity of interest of our people that is unmatched in the history of freedom. Well, it looks like that unity of interest lasted eight years. And then the country went in a completely opposite direction, which is what we're going to talk about in topic two. So we'll see you around for that video. But that wraps it up for this one. As always, don't forget to check out the short answer questions.